You are listening to episode 39 of Stoicism on Fire. Hello, everyone. This is Chris Fisher, welcoming you to the Stoicism on Fire podcast, where the ancient practice of Stoic philosophy as a way of life and rational form of spirituality is still alive. Don't ask for things to happen as you would like them to, but wish them to happen as they actually do, and you will be all right. Enchiridion 8. This passage and several similar passages within the Stoic text present a huge, sometimes insurmountable stumbling block for many people when they begin to study and practice Stoicism. As Simplicius notes in his commentary on this passage, but perhaps this injunction to wish for it to happen as it happens will seem to some people to be harsh and impossible. What right-thinking human being wishes for the occurrences of the widespread bad effects resulting from the universe? For instance, earthquakes, deluges, conflagrations, plagues, famine, and the destruction of all sorts of animals and crops, or the impious deeds performed by some humans on others, the sacking of cities, taking prisoners of war, unjust killings, piracy, kidnapping, licentiousness, and tyrannical force culminating in compelled acts of impiety. These things and others of this sort, of which there has been an excess in our own lifetime, who would want to hear them, let alone see them, take part in them, or wish them to happen as they happen, except a malevolent person and a hater of all that is fine? Within the last month, I responded to emails from two Stoicism on Fire listeners who expressed concern about this concept in Stoicism. I will keep the identity of those listeners anonymous. However, I'm going to use the content of those emails to help express this concern that is likely shared by others. The first email is from a man who wrote, I'm hoping you will be able to help me with something which has been a source of some vexation for me. I've been studying philosophy for most of my adult life, and Stoicism is something I came into in the last five years or so. The problem I have is to do with the discipline of assent. It seems what the Stoic wants is to dispense with the value judgment part of an impression. The idea seems to be that whatever is not in my control is to be expunged by simply not assenting to it. Now, I can perfectly see the argument when a driver cuts me off or someone says something insulting to me. I may want to remove my value judgment to preserve my equanimity. All perfectly obvious. But what you seem to be saying is that any value judgment based on something not in my control should be deleted from the impression in order to preserve my equanimity. I'm afraid I find this absurd. Suppose you find yourself in a situation where one of your children has been taken hostage by a terrorist and is being threatened with a knife. There's a high probability that something terrible will happen. But according to the discipline of assent, you will need to delete the value judgment, which any normal father would have, that my child is in danger. Having thus deleted the value judgment, you can observe events unfolding from your, quote, inner citadel, end quote, completely unperturbed. The second email is from a woman. She wrote, I have been reading the Stoics for many years. They have served as my substitute for religion, my preferred cognitive therapy. However, my major reservation is that Stoicism does not provide an adequate answer or comfort in times of personal or global tragedy or suffering. 
when something horrible happens to someone, how can we respond by saying, we will things as they are, we will things to happen as they have? Stoicism does not provide a good answer to the natural human emotional response to personal tragedy. It does not appear to accept that it is okay to feel the natural emotional anguish that comes with personal tragedy. I have always seen this as a major weakness. A show on this would be helpful, i.e., how does Stoicism dictate that the practitioner should react to a personal tragedy in their life, and does this make sense? Is it rational to expect sentient human beings to react to tragedy by saying, yes, I will things to happen as they have? Well, here's the episode you asked for, and I hope that it helps you and others with this challenging question about Stoic practice. First, I will say I fully understand the sentiments of both of these listeners. I had similar thoughts about this concept when I first approached Stoicism. And I suspect that many of my listeners reacted similarly to these passages, those like Enchiridion 8, when they first encountered them as well. Moreover, I'm sure some of you are still struggling with the idea that you should not judge tragedy as bad, but wish for things to happen as they do. Many people will find this mindset wholly unacceptable and abandon Stoicism entirely or ignore this aspect of Stoic practice. For many people, this aspect of Stoicism is counterintuitive because they are judging it, consciously or unconsciously, from the perspective of a worldview that is not compatible with Stoicism. As A. A. Long and other scholars of Stoicism have pointed out, several aspects of Stoicism are counterintuitive apart from the theological worldview the Stoics relied on to create their philosophical way of life. For that reason, it will be helpful to consider this difficult aspect of Stoicism using the concerns expressed by these two listeners. Now, I want to make it clear, I am not criticizing these listeners in any way, quite the opposite. I hope to help them, and many others like them, to navigate this difficult aspect of Stoicism. To that extent, I want to thank them for expressing their concern to me and allowing me to address it for the benefit of others who may be concerned about the very same thing. Now, in the first letter, our writer juxtaposes two different scenarios. The first includes two relatively trivial incidents, a driver who cuts him off in traffic and someone who offers a personal insult. The second scenario, however, involves a terrorist who is holding a child hostage at knife point. Obviously, to any rational person, there is a considerable difference in the degree of perceived loss between these two scenarios. Only our ego is in play in the first case, and we will likely forget about the incident within a matter of minutes or hours. In the second, the life of a beloved child is at risk, and their loss could affect the loving father for the rest of his life. Therefore, a reasonable response to these threats should be proportional to the potential loss. To that end, most people would consider it reasonable to use deadly force to stop a terrorist from harming their child. Alternatively, it would be completely unreasonable and irrational to run the bad driver off the road for cutting you off. Likewise, Punching, stabbing, shooting someone who simply offended you with a personal insult would be a disproportionate and unreasonable response. Our laws are typically codified to prevent this latter extreme action, this disproportionate action. On the other hand, laws are often written to protect those who use deadly force to save their own life or the life of others from a deadly threat. The second listener's email expresses a similar concern, but more generically. She asks, is it rational for sentient human beings to react to tragedy by saying, yes, I will things to happen as they have? 
As we've already seen from the commentary of Simplicius, these sentiments represent a common concern about Stoicism. So if this is a common concern, how does Stoicism resolve it? How is it reasonable for a Stoic to tell us we should wish for what happens even when what happens is an apparent tragedy? I think there are two principles of Stoic doctrine that are at play here. The first is the difference between what is up to us and therefore truly good and bad for us as practicing Stoics, and the second principle entails trust in a providentially ordered cosmos. For every event that occurs in our life, even those we commonly consider tragic, we must begin with Enchiridion 1 and remind ourselves what is up to us and what is not up to us. Any event that is not up to us is an indifferent. No matter how tragic the event may appear, it does not affect our moral character, our virtue, because it is an external to our proresis, our rational faculty, which is up to us and allows us to judge the event as either good or bad. Now remember, Stoicism teaches us that our good character, erite, virtue, is necessary and sufficient for well-being. Nothing but virtue is needed, and nothing else contributes to or detracts from our well-being. If we lose sight of this fundamental principle of Stoicism, nothing else in our practice will work, and we will not be all right. Therefore, the most common, and typically the first mistake we make when apparent tragedy occurs, is placing indifference on the wrong side of the well-being balance scale, now, for this to make sense, I need you to visualize one of those old-fashioned balance scales. You know, the ones that have an arm that extends on both sides and they either have a tray on top or they trays that dangle from chains? These scales work by placing a calibrated weight on one side and then some substance on the other side to match that calibrated weight. So when they balance, they're equal. In this analogy, I'm referring to this as a well-being scale because we will imagine using it to weigh things of value to our well-being. I used this imagery in episode 6 on the topic of what is up to us. The common conception of happiness would have us stack as many preferred indifference like wealth, good health, a good reputation, a good job, an excellent life partner, etc. on one side of that scale and hope that those things outweigh any of the dispreferred indifference, like poverty, illness, etc., that may come into our life and end up on the other side of the scale. The Stoics argue this approach to life can never create well-being. Why? Because it makes our well-being dependent upon externals that are not up to us. That is why the Stoics took a different approach to well-being. The Stoics argue the virtues— wisdom, justice, courage, and moderation are the only things entirely up to us. Therefore, our well-being should depend on those things, those virtues, alone. As a result, the Stoic practitioner must use the well-being scale differently. Stoicism teaches us to place all externals, that includes preferred and dispreferred indifference, no matter how seemingly pleasurable or painful they may be, on the same side of the well-being scale. Why? Because the only thing allowed on the other side of the scale are the virtues. We make a fundamental mistake when we place externals, preferred or dispreferred indifference, on the same side of the well-being balance scale as those things upon which our well-being depends, the virtues. 
bad drivers, personal insults, the actions of terrorists, and personal tragedy of any kind, even our death, are not up to us. Therefore, they are dispreferred indifference, which means they do not have the capacity in and of themselves to affect our moral character, our virtue, and our well-being, our eudaimonia, or happiness. They are not bad. The only things that are up to us, and therefore can affect our character and well-being, are our value judgments, desires and aversions, and impulses to act. Now here's the good news. According to the Stoics, virtue has infinitely more value than any of those indifference. Therefore, virtue tips the well-being scale all the way to well-being, no matter how many dispreferred indifference of even the most tragic kind we stack up on the other side of the scale. Now let's take another look at those common concerns expressed in these two emails. Admittedly, there is a vast difference in perceived value between dispreferred indifference like a personal insult or the rude behavior of a bad driver and the loss of a loved one or other personal tragedy. On a 10-point scale for dispreferred indifference, we would rightly value the insult as a 1 and the loss of a loved one, especially a child, at the hands of a knife-wielding terrorist as a 10. Nevertheless, we must keep this critically important distinction in mind. Both of these things are dispreferred indifference. Both go on the same side of that well-being scale, and neither can affect our character or our well-being unless we mistakenly assent to them as things upon which our well-being depends. Now, I understand that many people will feel uncomfortable with this aspect of Stoicism. There is no question this Stoic attitude toward externals, a category into which we must place even our loved ones, can at first appear absurd or irrational. That is why Stoicism is so frequently misunderstood and mischaracterized by those who read passages like Enchiridion 8 in isolation. Apart from Stoicism's holistic theory, several aspects of Stoic practice can provoke concern. That is why the Stoics argued that their ethical practices could not be understood and practiced without proper training in all three parts of their philosophy— logic, physics, and ethics. Now, this brings us to the second aspect of Stoicism that can remedy these common misunderstandings. Stoic practice relies on Stoic philosophical theory, and that theory includes a providentially ordered cosmos. It is essential for students of Stoicism to understand this aspect of Stoic theory. As Epictetus taught, true education consists precisely in this, in learning to wish that everything should come about as it does, and how do things come about? As the one who ordains them has ordained. Discourses 1, 12, 15. A. A. Long, an acclaimed scholar of Stoicism, offers the following commentary on this passage. Epictetus's context here is the freedom that we can achieve only by a proper apportionment of responsibility. Our responsibility as individual persons is solely over the area in which we are capable of being autonomous, the proper use of mental impressions. Everything else is God's business. It concerns us only to the extent that we adapt ourselves to it by understanding its rationale within the world's inevitable and providential system. Epictetus emphasizes this point again in Discourses 2.14.11, where we read, The philosophers, or the Stoics, say that the first thing that needs to be learned is the following, that there is a God, and a God who exercises providential care for the cosmos. 
and that it is impossible to conceal from him not only our actions, but even our thoughts and intentions. When people attempt to interpret Stoicism through the lens of their existing worldview, whether monotheism or atheism slash agnosticism, they will inevitably misunderstand it. To truly understand Stoicism, one must set aside the preconceptions of their worldview long enough to consider the Stoic claims from their perspective. Again, A.A. Long notes in another one of his scholarly works, quote, The main argument of this chapter is that Stoic eudaimonism makes good sense if and only if one adopts a Stoic view of the way things are. If, as I have claimed, determinism and divine providence are crucial features of that view, any attempt to elucidate Stoic ethics which ignores these features will be broken-backed. I think this is why Cicero's account of Stoic ethics, which make little reference to what I call theocratic postulate, are less successful than Epictetus and Marcus at conveying the emotional attraction of Stoicism. Christoph Jadon, a German ethics professor, makes this point succinctly when he argues, The religious tenor of Stoic philosophy provides the key for any adequate understanding of Stoic ethics, not only across time, but also structurally by helping us to understand a number of counterintuitive and seemingly incoherent Stoic statements. The Stoics conceived of the cosmos as a living organism that exists for the benefit of itself and all of its parts. The Stoics trusted the cosmos to do what is best for the whole, and they trained themselves to wish for and love what happened. As Pierre Haydeau wrote, By consenting to the present event, which is happening to me, in which the whole world is implied, I want that which universal reason wants, and identify myself with it in my feeling of participation and of belonging to a whole which transcends the limits of individuality. I feel a sense of intimacy with the universe and plunge myself into the immensity of the cosmos. Thus, the self qua will, or liberty, coincides with the will of universal reason, or the logos, which extends throughout all things. The self, as guiding principle, coincides with the guiding principle of the universe. End quote. So where does this leave us? It leaves many moderns in a difficult place. Stoicism, as understood and practiced by the ancient Stoics, does entail an existential choice to assent to a providentially ordered cosmos. Doing so is not a matter of religious faith. This existential choice implies assent to some reasonable assumptions supported by evidence, reason, and logic. In fact, modern discoveries and theories from quantum physics, quantum biology, and consciousness studies support the Stoic conception of the cosmos and human nature. Stoic physics, which includes theology, is interconnected with Stoic logic and ethics to form the holistic Stoic philosophical system. The system cannot be deconstructed without consequence. The Stoics made this quite evident by using three similes, an egg, animal, and orchard, to represent the holistic nature of their philosophical system. If we remove the yolk from an egg, it is no longer an egg. Likewise, if we remove the decision-making capabilities from an animal, its soul, it's no longer an animal. Finally, if you remove the soil from an orchard, it's no longer capable of bearing fruit. What were the Stoics trying to point out with these similes? 
if you remove any part of Stoicism, logic, physics, or ethics from the holistic philosophical system, what remains is not Stoicism as it is represented in the surviving Stoic texts. Sadly, many moderns will still reject the metaphysical doctrines of Stoicism without much consideration because they wrongly associate Stoic theology with monotheism. As A.A. A. Long notes, for modern readers raised in the traditions of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, the theology of Greco-Roman philosophy is exceptionally difficult to grasp without falling victim to either over-assimilation or excessive differentiation. In the case of Epictetus, the difficulty is extreme because he says so much that reads like and sometimes has been read as a direct echo of the New Testament. End quote. If that is true of you, I strongly encourage you to set aside your preconceptions long enough to consider the providential cosmos of Stoicism with an open mind. Stop arguing against the straw man of monotheism and give the Stoic conception of the divine some honest consideration. You may still reject it. However, at least you will understand that it is not the God of monotheistic religion that you are rejecting. Now, before I close, I want to point out an important distinction in Enchiridion 8 and similar passages that can lead to misunderstanding if overlooked. Epictetus instructs us to wish that things happen as they do. Now, how can we know how things have happened? Well, the event must have already occurred. If we use the death of a loved one as an example, Epictetus is not telling us that we should have explicitly wished for their death in advance. Instead, and here's the critically important distinction, only after their death has occurred are we supposed to bring our will into agreement with the will of universal reason and wish for things to have happened as they did. Now that subtle distinction may be of little consolation to you, but it is still critically important. In other words, the Stoics are not telling us that we should wish for tragedy in advance. As long as the outcome of any event is in question, we can wish for and attempt to bring about any end that is in accordance with nature. In Discourses 2.6, Epictetus tells us, Always remember what is your own and what is not, and you'll never be troubled. So Chrysippus did well to say, As long as the consequences remain unclear to me, I always hold to what is best fitted to secure such things as are in accordance with nature. For God himself, in creating me, granted me the freedom to choose them. But if I, in fact, knew that illness had been decreed for me at this moment by destiny, I would welcome even that. For the foot, too, if it had understanding, would be eager to get spattered with mud. Note that Chrysippus claimed he would wish to be ill only if illness had been decreed for him, quote, at this moment by destiny, end quote. He did not say he would wish for illness if it wasn't in his destiny, and he wouldn't wish for it to come earlier than destiny prescribed it either. In fact, he said the opposite. As long as the consequences remain unclear to me, I always hold to what is best fitted to secure those things that are in accordance with nature. In other words, Chrysippus declared himself free to choose those preferred indifference that are in accordance with nature as long as the will of universal reason or fate was unclear to him. Why? Because God gave him the freedom to choose good health, adequate financial means, a home, friends and family, etc., over their opposites. He would only wish for those opposites if he knew in advance that that was his destiny. So what does this mean for the listeners who wrote to me? 
The Stoics did not tell us to wish a knife-wielding terrorist would abduct a loved one. That would be truly absurd. Nevertheless, if it does happen, they would also tell us to do everything in our power to save them from harm. However, if that terrorist ends the life of our loved one, the Stoics remind us that event does not affect our moral excellence or well-being unless we assent to the wrong judgment that our well-being depends on their remaining alive. As horrible as the death of a loved one would be, it is still a dispreferred indifferent with regard to our character, and it does not budge the balance of the well-being scale. At that point, it is in our best interest to accept, agree with, and love fate. When we choose to see things from a cosmic perspective, as the Stoics recommend, all events, even those that we would otherwise consider tragic, offer us new possibilities. We get to choose the meaning of those events and thereby choose their impact in our lives. We know from the writings of Plato that Socrates could have escaped prison and death with the help of his friends. If he did, he wouldn't be Socrates. He understood that. So he chose to live as Socrates and thereby chose to follow the path of virtue to his death. His philosophical legacy remains today because he made that choice from the cosmic perspective. Cato, the famous Stoic, could have allowed himself to be captured by Caesar when his battle to save the Roman Republic was lost. However, he knew he would be used as a political pawn by Caesar to further his tyranny. Therefore, he chose to live as Cato. He chose the path of virtue and took his own life. Cato's legacy lives on today as a great example of resistance to tyranny. Epictetus could have chosen to be angry at his master and the gods for putting him in slavery. Instead, it appears he chose to rise above his circumstances. As a result, his master saw something special in Epictetus and sent him off to Musonius Rufus for Stoic training. We have the teachings of Epictetus today because he chose to see things from a cosmic perspective. He could have chosen otherwise. However, he chose to live a virtuous life even while he was enslaved. Today, we are better off because Epictetus didn't allow the chains of slavery to prevent him from living virtuously and becoming a teacher who still impacts people's lives nearly two millennia later. As Simplicius clearly articulates in his commentary on Enchiridion 8, if we are not to live a life of frustration, being displeased by the events that happen, it is necessary that either the universe should always do what pleases us, or we should be pleased by whatever we are allotted by the universe. It is not possible to be happy in any other way. But it is impossible for us to compel the universe to do what pleases us, and not even always to our advantage, because we are pleased by many things that are actually disadvantageous to us, either through our ignorance of their nature or when we run away with our irrational desires. So if we are to be happy... It is necessary that we should dispose ourselves to be pleased by what happens to the agency of the universe. In closing, I'm going to read one of Epictetus's more protreptic admonitions from Discourses 1-6. So come on then, now that you recognize these things and consider the faculties that you possess, and having done so, say, bring on me now, Zeus, Whatever trouble you may wish, since I have the equipment that you granted me and such resources as will enable me to distinguish myself through whatever may happen. 
No, but you sit there trembling at the thought that certain things may come about and wailing, grieving, and groaning at others that do not come about. And then you cast blame on the gods. For what else than impiety can result from such meanness of spirit? And yet God has not only granted us these faculties that enable us to endure whatever may happen without being debased or crushed by it, but has also granted them to us as benefits a king and, in truth, father, free from all hindrance, compulsion, and restraint, placing them entirely within our power without reserving any power even for himself to hinder or restrain them. Possessing these faculties as you do, free and as your own, you fail to make use of them, however, and fail to perceive what it is you have received, and from whom, but sit there grieving and groaning, some of you blinded towards the giver and not even recognizing your benefactor, while others are led astray by their meanness of spirit into making reproaches and complaints against God. Discourses 1, 6, 37-42 When we stop asking for things to happen as we would like them to happen and trust the divine providential cosmos to the extent that we wish events to happen as they do, we bring our will into perfect agreement with nature. Then, as Epictetus promises, everything will be all right. Thank you for listening to Stoicism on Fire. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts. That tells others that this podcast is worth listening to and helps introduce more people to the ancient spiritual practices of the Stoics. If you're interested in exploring traditional Stoicism further, you will find plenty of resources at traditionalstoicism.com. If you're ready for an online mentored training program, check out the College of Stoic Philosophers at collegeofstoicphilosophers.org. That is where I received my initial education and training in the theory and practice of Stoicism. If you're interested in a social media environment where you can find some like-minded fellow travelers, join us on Facebook in the Traditional Stoicism group. If you have feedback for me or a great podcast idea, send me an email at chris at traditionalstoicism.com. Until next time, I hope you will continue practicing the traditional form of Stoicism where the cosmos is alive with the meaning and purpose of the divine creative fire. I wish you well and encourage you to keep your practice of Stoicism on fire.